We're reading today from Mark chapter 3. We're starting at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were putting, pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boningers, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's our reading for this morning. I hope you'll keep that uh, reading in front of you and uh, it was printed uh, in the uh, handout and you'll see in that handout the uh, outline of the uh, where we're going this morning from Mark chapter 3. Well, take think today that there are many medium to even large, uh, large organisations who have a recruitment department recruiting their staff. Uh, it isn't always the case, however, that uh, the uh, organisation will um, do the recruiting from within or have the department from within the organisation. Sometimes, indeed, they will outsource the recruitment to a specialised HR department, and um, I happened to pick up a copy uh, of a letter of one of these uh, specialist departments called the uh, Jordan Management Consultants, they were called. They completed a um, report on a recruitment that took place some months ago for a new enterprise. And anyway, the letter is addressed to Jesus, the son of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, I should say, the woodcrafter's carpenter shop of Nazareth, 25922, and it reads like this, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new enterprise. Uh, all of them have now taken the battery of tests and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. 
The profiles of all tests are included and uh, you will want to study each of them very carefully. And as part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They don't have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, referred to as Boanerges, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew's brother, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot definitely have radical leanings and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. But one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability, resourcefulness, meets and greets people well, has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles self-explanatory. Wish you every success, your new venture. Sincerely, the Jordan Management Consultants. <laughs> well, uh, little did they know how these men would be transformed by Jesus. For Jesus is in the business of training workers for his harvest and enterprise. And uh, why he does that and how he does that is really what we're thinking about this morning. Are you a part of Jesus' training enterprise? What requirements are there? The circumstances requiring uh, recruitment, recruiting are here in Mark 3 and uh, we uh, find what I've described here a Category 5 crowd. <laughs> I suppose you picked that up as it was being read. You know, there was a massive storm. We've heard of those, haven't we? Bearing down on the coast somewhere, the largest ones are called Category 5s. Massive storms. And what Jesus is facing on the shore of Galilee here is a massive event. A Category 5 crowd. People from all over the place here, all over the compass, have come to get to him, to be near Jesus which really tells us something about his greatness. His reputation had exploded like a firecracker. From Galilee, where Jesus had been ministering, from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea in the south, nearly 250 kilometres away. From Tyre and Sidon in the north, about 100 kilometres away. Uh, the regions across the Jordan in the east, all log jamming upon Jesus. It was a bit like the um, Buddy Franklin moment, I don't know whether you saw this, 
he put it in hand like AFL, and not, not everybody, I think every Tasmanian likes AFL. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm warming to it, I suppose that's probably the way I would describe myself. Anyway, Buddy Franklin, dare I say this, a Sydney swan. Anyway, uh, he kicked a thousand goal not long ago, and you probably remember the crowd. It was a bit overwhelming, wasn't it? At that moment, the ball went through those posts. Thousands of adoring fans just sort of came to the ground and were going all over with Franklin. Get, get the phone out, get the selfie with Bad Buddy. Buddy's my buddy, you know. Um, pat on the back for the hero. And then the game just stopped for 33 minutes. They got their money's worth that night, didn't they? Jesus hadn't kicked any goals, but he was kicking disease and sickness out of the homes and streets of Palestine. And it's little wonder people would go to great lengths to get to Jesus, to go the extra miles to get to Jesus, to touch him, to be cured. And so to sort of create some kind of crowd control of this massive situation, I, mean, I don't think Batty had anything planned that night. I think it was overwhelming, wasn't it? Um, for Jesus, he decided to try to distance himself from the crowd. He had a boat to climb into there on the, on the lake. Big numbers of people. Success is often measured by big numbers. Crowds of people flocking to some event. Well, what was this crowd wanting? They're not at the water's edge because they love Jesus. They're not there because they want to come under his teaching, under his direction, to take up his yoke, be his disciple. Some from this Category 5 crowd would have been praising Jesus as Jesus went into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Hosanna to the Son of God, the Son of David, they would have been shouting that, only to turn a few days later against him. They were not there to learn from him or to serve Jesus in the kingdom, but to see what they could get from him. They were physically so near to Jesus and spiritually they were so far from him. They were there because they were more concerned about their bodies than their souls. It's good to be concerned about our bodies. Our prayers are often focused on the physical problems, the sick, the recovering from illness and operations, the fact that we're going to be raised bodily one day in the resurrection to be reunited with our souls means we should be concerned about the well-being of our bodies here. But Jesus' top priority in his teaching is the care of our souls. He said, what will it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose his or her very soul? The value is your soul. How much are people concerned about their souls? How concerned this Category 5 crowd what the crowd is doing with Jesus makes it clear that people 
can be very near to Jesus, could be very near to touch him and benefit from him, but he may never know them. Their souls aren't saved. It wasn't their concern. That could happen in church, couldn't it? So close to Jesus. Around his people. Around his church. Even a member. Around his word. Having needs met. Being prayed for concerning physical health. And the soul isn't saved. A large congregation might be filled with spiritually mature people, filled with the love of God, filled with kingdom service, where disciple-making is kind of like the DNA. And there could also be large congregations made up of lots of what is described as tares and wheat, or weeds rather, that outnumber the wheat. could happen in smaller churches too. A Category 5 crowd near Jesus, pressing around him, says nothing about the spiritual maturity of people, just as the size of a congregation itself says nothing about its spiritual maturity. Some had left the crowd and were already, already disciples. They were with Jesus. Jesus was with them. Jesus had made them his disciples. Has Jesus made you his disciple? Is that what Jesus has done for you, is doing for you? Are you part of Jesus' training Enterprise. And as the Category 5 crowd received healing for their physical ailments and diseases from Jesus, we see here another category present. That's the evil spirits. And already Jesus has demonstrated authority over evil spirits in the synagogue of Capernaum. They recognise who Jesus is. And there they fall down in submission, crying, you are the son of God, and it's, it's not enough to know who Jesus is to be saved. Or to say who Jesus is. The, the, the demons get 100% on the Jesus identity test. Unlike the crowd... There's no way that they're serving in the kingdom of God. Identifying Jesus correctly doesn't necessarily make you part of Jesus' training enterprise. 
Adam exercised his God-given authority in the garden by naming things. Garden of Eden. And it's absolutely pointless of the demons to try to assert their authority over the second person of the Trinity. But they have a go, don't they, in the passage? Which brings that swift rebuke from Jesus, giving them strict orders not to tell anyone about him. Why does he do that? Because I think it's unsuitable as a witness. How could it be the right of the demons to point people to the identity of Jesus? And then secondly, the messianic secret is in place, as we've talked about this already, haven't we, in previous weeks. He's the son of, the son of God, whose identity is going to be defined ultimately through the ministry at the cross. Whenever evil appears before God, its mouth is shut. Whenever hell's forces collide with heaven's sun, the inevitable result is silence. When people appear before God at the last judgment, there will be silence in his presence. There will be no argument, no boasting, no appeal, no case that works. Every mouth is brought to silence and the whole world held accountable. Every knee will bow and every mouth used to confess the Lordship of Christ. And until such time, what of evil? Should Christians fear it? Ignore it? Can Christians be demon-possessed? There are two things to guard against here. First is the underestimating of the devil's power. You know, we sort of treat it as if it doesn't exist. Living and breathing in this sort of secular age that we are in, we might sort of think that Satan's just a myth. The French poet Charles Baudelaire once said, the devil's finest trick is to persuade you that he does not exist. And he's convinced many. But then we must be careful of overestimating his power. To not blame him for every sinful behaviour like you know, the devil made me do it. Nor do we believe somehow, somehow that um, God is limited or restricted by his supernatural enemies. They know their proper place before the almighty God. They know who Jesus is. They rightly fall down trembling in fear. Being united to Christ, united to your saviour by faith, you can never be destroyed by them. God has almighty care of his children. There is no scheme the evil one may try to inflict that will result in his ultimate victory over God's people, nor his possession of them. When Satan tempts me to despair, 
and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Have you looked at this one and seen how he has made an end of your sin? And that's how Jesus is now your saviour. You may see him as having supreme authority. You may fall down before him reluctantly, not wanting him to have control of your life. It might just be enough for you to know who Jesus is. Well, the demons do that. Crowds get very near to Jesus. They're far from his kingdom. What's needed? What's critical, essential? And it's being with Jesus in training. Jesus moves from the lake to the mountain. Up he goes. He calls to himself those he wanted. And they came to him, men whom he appointed as the twelve. That word appointed in, that, in the text you'll see there has that original sense of to make something. The same word is used in Genesis 1.1 in the, in the Greek New Old Testament. There God, we read, didn't appoint the heavens and the earth, did he? He didn't select the heavens and the earth. He created them. And in the same way, Jesus isn't simply appointing men to a special task. He was making them into something. He made them into his intimate group to be with him, to learn from Jesus to be the sent ones by Jesus, to preach the message of the kingdom and exercise authority of Jesus over the demons. He made them the church, the ones he called. And the word that we have for church is the word ecclesia. Ek meaning out of or from, the word klesia coming from the word kaleo to call. The church, that is the, the called out ones. As Jesus calls them to himself. When someone comes to believe in Jesus for the first time, they don't just believe in Jesus, but into Jesus called from being outside Christ, from being separated from him, to union with him. We enter into Jesus, into a spiritual bond that lasts for eternity. We have been called by Jesus to be with him, to learn from him in order to be sent by him. 
As soon as we believe into Jesus, he gives us a mission. To go into the world and make disciples. And as we do that, he is with us. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. And the twelve had that unique authority. And Jesus called them and commissioned them. Their preaching comes to us in the New Testament. Their authority from Jesus is in the scriptures. Their ministry was the outflow of being with Jesus. We aren't looking for any new apostles today. The foundation of the church is already laid. It has been built upon Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles, being built up into Christ the head. But why 12? Why not 10? Or 8 or 16? And 12 recalls that 12 tribes of Israel that were the foundation of that old covenant community. By calling the 12, Jesus has establishing the new covenant community to stand in continuity with Israel, the old covenant community, established through, remember, Moses. And established where by Moses? Through, with God. On a mountain. Mount Sinai. And our Lord Jesus the twelve, on the mountain, inaugurating the new era on the new community. It was the church in miniature. They were from all sorts of diverse backgrounds and far from standout candidates. And he united them into one body for his service. But the essential thing was that he called them. And he wanted them to be with him in order to send them into ministry. He called them individually and put them in a group. It was corporate with others as the church to learn, to grow and to serve together. To do his ministry, to serve Jesus, you must be with him and you must call, you must, he must call you to himself. How do you know whether he's done that for you? Well, you've come to him. By faith and trust and repenting and depending. He calls you by speaking through the words of Scripture, words of the apostles, God's word, Jesus' word through them. And if we're not listening to them, we are not learning from him. We are not, we are not building our faith on the authority of the apostles. 
that Jesus commissioned. And if we're not receiving Jesus' training, then we won't grow as his disciples. We won't grow into Christ and what he wants us to do. Are we more concerned for Jesus to sort out the issues and problems in our lives, even our own happiness, than to ask him to train us in what he wants us to do? Are you willing to be with Jesus and to be trained by Jesus and to be used by Jesus. He uses his people. He uses his word. That's what he has called the church to be and to do. Being his disciples, growing them, making them as his people go. Let's pray. Lord, in our prayer, we pray boldly. We want to ask you that you would teach us and train us to be your disciples that we might go and make them and grow them in your name. Lord, that we might listen to you and be with you as it was that you have called those first 12 and established the foundation of the church. Lord, we sit here today as men and women, children that have received the, the authoritative word of the, of the apostles. And we pray that that word might continue to bear fruit in our lives, that we might give ourselves to being your followers, your disciples, training, being trained by you. In Jesus' name, amen.